0: Book Gang guest is Jeffrey Dale Lofton, a senior advisor at the Library of Congress and recent debut novelist. But before we kick things off, what does a senior advisor to the Library of Congress do? Well, I'm going to let Jeffrey explain that role in his very own words.
1: I am very near my 19th anniversary with the Library of Congress. And during those years, I've held a variety of roles, starting with uh, a program called the veterans history project which is an oral history program which is designed to help veterans tell their stories it's a way to capture history from the people who experienced it rather than the textbook version of history and my role was to you know work with a team of other veterans history project colleagues to help these veterans tell their stories and those stories are then added to the library's permanent collection And next, I served as a congressional liaison to help members of Congress share the Veterans History Project with their constituents. And I also created a mentoring program for uh, library employees called Future Bridge. It was a wonderful experience seeing other people achieve their goals and achieve their dreams. And now I am a senior advisor to the chief human capital officer. And it's a role I love. My primary duty is to be a strategic partner with um, the chief human capital officer, offer counsel on a variety of matters, and serve as the, the primary point of contact for any senior manager on any topic that is important to them. The Library Caucus really is the best place to work. And mm-hmm. <laughs> and I believe that being there for the last 19 years contributed to my being able to write Ray Clay Susie because being surrounded by books and people who love books has been an incubator of sorts, which I think led me to writing Red Clay Susie.
0: As he hinted, he wrote his first book, Red Clay Susie, published in January 2023 from Post Hill Press. This fictional memoir delves into the depths of identity, self-discovery, and the journey of growing up as a gay boy in the Deep South. Nominated for the Center for Fiction 2023 First Novel Prize, this debut novel is going to resonate with our Jeff Zentner fans. Told through childlike narration, Philbit is a young boy with a misshapen chest and a big heart full of dreams. Amidst the backdrop of tomato sandwiches, green milkshakes, and a deep love for old cars, he grapples with the challenges of being a gay outsider in a conservative community. Bullied, misunderstood, and yearning for acceptance, Philbit discovers unexpected sources of strength and solace within surprising figures in his very own town. Inspired by Lofton's true life story, this coming-of-age story I know is going to capture your heart. In this intimate conversation today, Jeffrey shares his experience that shaped this remarkable narrative, the challenges of navigating his own identity, and the power of storytelling to bridge understanding, especially as a LGBTQ writer. We also talk about the juicy tidbits of landing your dream audiobook narrator and Jeffrey's big goals for your local libraries. Jeffrey also brings his top book recommendations for October, which just so happens to be LGBTQ History Month. We have gathered everything for you in a special online bonus book list that includes my top recommendations for the most impactful stack of nonfiction and fiction books in honor of this history month. I do want you to know that every episode of this show is crafted with so much love, so much heart, And this episode is just no exception to that rule. I think what makes my show special is that we seek to give a platform to debut novelists who need shows like this to give them space and time to tell their stories. Getting space in traditional media can be really tough, but homegrown efforts like this show give publicity to voices that you might not have met otherwise. All of these episodes are made possible through incredible, generous, kind, and loving Patreon supporters, and without them, the show would not exist. Asking for financial support, for me, is really humbling. It's really uncomfortable. I have not figured out a way to overcome complicated feelings about crowdfunding. It hurts my heart and ego a little bit to be dependent on my community. But more than anything, I want to stay on the air and continue hosting compelling conversations like this one today. If you feel compelled to pitch in 5 bucks a month, you won't just be helping me, but you get to help everyone who gets to hear stories like these. For October, patrons will unlock a 33-page reading guide for the month, an almost two-hour bonus show with Get Booked with Larry on the latest releases, book reviews, and book adaptation news to make finding your next book unbelievably easy. And that benefit happens every dang month, whether you want to surf those reviews on your phone or listen to them while doing things around the house. We have you covered. You will also unlock an exclusive interview with Sarah Novick, the author of this month's book club book, True Biz, which was one of my favorites of the whole year. Honestly, there are like 200 bonuses that I cannot wait to share with you over there. So head to the show notes to find out how to join or head to patreon.com backslash mom advice. Now let's meet this month's guest. Jeffrey Dale Lofton transitioned from a career in acting to pursue postgraduate studies, earning master's degrees in both public administration and library and information science. Currently, he serves as a senior advisor at the Library of Congress, indulging in his love for books. Originally from Warm Springs, Georgia, the author now resides in Washington, D.C. Red Clay Susie is his debut novel. Now let's get chatting. Booking listeners, I'm so excited because we have Jeffrey Dale Lofton here to talk about his fictional memoir, which we will get into what that means. Red Clay Susie. Jeffrey, thank you so much for being here. This is such an honor.
1: Well, Amy, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here.
0: Jeffrey, I want to start out with an icebreaker, which is that I noticed that you had been writing this book on your phone, and I wanted to talk about A storyteller whose story actually overlaps with yours, I consider him to be your book flight twin. It is Jeff Zentner. He wrote a book called In the Wild Light. It is for YA readers. Uh, It's really, really magnificent. And the ways that I see your stories overlap is that Philbit is the younger version I feel like, of Jeff Zetner's character and Jeff Zetner's kind of picks up where school is. I really want you to read it, like a thousand percent want you to read it. But why I I bring it up today isn't just because of the overlap, but because he's a writer that also wrote his book on his phone and I could not believe it because I'm like, these two people are exactly who I would pair together on a bookshelf. So I want to hear a little bit about your process of writing a book on your phone because it is really interesting to me. Who cannot send out one text without a million typos? <laughs>
1: <laughs> wow. You know, I I don't know Jeff Sentner's books, but I'm absolutely adding them to my to-be-read pile. I, I'm so excited. I love being introduced to authors I've not discovered yet. So thank you for that. And um, yeah, it's a that's something that has it surprised me as much as it surprised anyone else to have written a, a, a novel on a, on a on a mobile phone. There is another author I know who's done it too, and Amber Sparks is her name, I and mean, she actually lives here in DC. And so I'm going to back up just a little bit to tell you how I wrote the book and get to the iPhone, if I may. Mm-hmm. So. I started writing Red Clay Susie when I left home to attend the co- uh, college, LaGrange College in LaGrange, Georgia, which is a it's a, it's a small liberal arts institution. And it's only about 30 miles from where I grew up, but it's away from where I grew up. It was the first time I was away from home. And when I arrived, I found that years of frustration and humiliation and shame and fear and anger started to it was like a it was like a dam exploded in my head and out rushed this this wave of you know white hot memories um of my perfectly imperfect family and childhood and teenage friends all of whom played this you know very formative role in my my life to that point because from the earliest age you know, four or five years old, back when we were called youngins in Georgia, mm. I was the target of bullying and derision, even from members of my own extended family. And so when I got to college, because it started to sort of come out, it just overwhelmed me. It, um, I was, I was in crisis. And as a natural instinct, I started to write in journals. Little did I know that I was writing a novel, but it was, I've come to, to describe it as, an exorcism by exposition, and it was so healing and cathartic. It was like it was like a salve on an open wound. And but then coursework got in the way, and I found that I didn't have the time to you know to continue writing. I put it away, and I thought I'd go back to it after not too long, but it was almost thirty years before I went back to those journals. And this is why I did it. I, I've always been a, a, a voracious reader, and I read two books in succession. One was um Harper Lee's Incandescent to Kill a Mockingbird. And I had read it as a child, <clears throat> not as a child, as a young person, a teenager. Uh, but I, I wanted to reread it as an adult with my adult perspective. And when I did, there was just this shock of recognition that I didn't, uh, of Scout, the that other outsider child. And the way she navigated this so well defined world with those, those inhabitants that were so, you know, I knew people like that in my life growing up. And that was one book. The next book in my TBR was Call Me By Your Name by Andre Asiman. And the two of those books, it's the power of literature for me. It it was like it was like the most effeminate Boy Scout you've ever encountered rubbing together two sticks of wood that just burst into flame and I caught fire. Mm. And I remembered and, and it it took me back to those early years when I had left home for college and I thought of those journals and I keep everything. And so I went back, I pulled them out and I started rereading them. And this is when we get to the, the, the mobile phone, the iPhone. After I reread those journals with, I have to admit, a lot of embarrassment at how emotionally raw they were, I thought that I've got to finish this story. It's not out of me. I'm a, I'm a fully grown person, but I had to go back to it. And almost as an instinct as I did when I was younger, I started writing on my mobile phone in the notes app to and from my job. On the subway, to and from my job at the Library of Congress, and that's how I finished the first draft of the book on my mobile phone.
0: <laughs> well, you know think- Jeff also did it his on his commute that it's just so eerie the similar I feel like if you to take anything from this interview, I hope that you'll read his work because I think that you and his like his book and your book should be together. They are just so perfect. Um, he wrote a book about religion a little bit in the south it was called the serpent king it was really just a great examination it's a coming of age story he's a nashville writer
1: i read that i just don't recognize the name my goodness yeah yeah oh wow
0: yeah. So um that book, but in the wild light is your like perfect pair book. And he actually got used in some of the ads, I think for the bus, the transit system that they have there because they were talking about people who did miraculous things basically on their commute and they ended up using him in an advertisement. So I just think it's so interesting to me that you also were doing this on a commute as well and that you were using your notes app to you know document your journey. Now I think the big distinction uh between your story and and Jeff's is that yours is partly about you and you know it is a fictionalized telling which is an interesting thing that we haven't got to talk about yet on the podcast. What does it mean to say that you have a fictional memoir?
1: I think to tell to to, to write a fictional memoir is really to to tell one's truth and and it's different from It's different from writing a memoir, in my view. So a fictionalized memoir, writing it is, it's, um, it's freeing and it's also, uh, constricting. It's freeing in that you, you can rewrite your story. You can, you can explore alternative versions of your life. You can write wrongs on the page. And, and that's one big reason I decided to fictionalize my memoir. Um, and, and to make it a novel, but it's constricting because, and this is true of a memoir, I think it's constricting because you, there is, there is the potential to, um, it has an impact on other people. It's not just about, you know, you, the writer, but you have the potential, I think, to, to, um, to harm people, to hurt people. I think that's a better word, to hurt people. I mean, sometimes you can get around that. It's as simple as just changing the names of people. Or maybe it's rearranging the time frames the you know the the order of events, so that they um didn't happen exactly as they happened in life, but they they also might serve your story art better to move things around to you know so that you create the story um that that flows better. sometimes it's not possible to to change your story in any way that that might avoid upsetting someone but i think at the least if you're going to tell it you know as it happened if there's the potential for it to to hurt other people i hope that those writers who are doing that can can write the story in a way that isn't isn't mean spirited mm-hmm. because if you don't tell your truth then you know why do it but of course no one wants to hurt anyone else so um that's 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 those are my thoughts on it and so that's why um that's why I chose to write a, a fictionalized memoir, and why mine I think is because there are you know there are it's based on you know a lot of the characters in the book are based on real people in my life, but there are characters who are not people for my life, and I did that because I wanted to explore different stories, different you know what what might have been had I made different decisions.
0: Let's talk about the voiciness of Filbert. He's got a very distinct voice. I think it is challenging with child narrators. Sometimes I don't always enjoy that experience. That will be my honest truth. I think sometimes readers struggle to, to stay in that mindset and, and hear a story from a childlike mind. But what makes Philbit so fascinating and fun and interesting is is that I was like, either Jeffrey recalls like every moment of his childhood, which I'm hearing you say that you had this journal experience. I'm a, a person that doesn't remember a lot from my childhood, but my husband is a person that has great recollection and he can tell very vivid details in his stories. And your mind works like his. I could see all of these different things playing out. One kind of funny scene that struck me is like, you thought that people or Philbit thought that people were rich if they could afford like Roman meal bread. And I remember feeling like that that was the fancy bread too. But I don't know if I would recall that, you know, as a child, those kinds of feelings. So how did you capture encapsulate that childlike mind, and keep the story still grounded enough that an adult reader could also appreciate Philbert's coming-of-age story.
1: Wow. Yeah, I re- always remember the, the Roman meal bread on the shelf, and we never bought it <laughs> because it was more expensive than the white bread. I've always been a writer. I just never told anybody I was writing. But when I went back to this project, I'll call it a project, I, I decided that I had to know find a way to take myself back in time and so I did what I now call creating a time machine it was a 1960s 1970s sensory time machine that I crafted and you know to take me back to my four five six-year-old ten-year-old self Mm -hmm. um, so that I could hopefully find those vivid emotional memories and um, you know open the door to that part of my life that is you know long past, but it was still in there somewhere. And so I think part of it is just how I process information and, 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 and see the world around me. Um, I, you know, I, I, as a child, just like my protagonist Phil, but was fixated on cars, loved cars and um, obsessed with cars, I guess is the better word. And I could tell you the make model year of any car just by um, catching the slightest glimpse of a, a curve of a fender or a taillight, light. And sometimes even, you know, hearing the motor with my back turned to it, could identify it because of just the sound. So having a great interest in something from those years ago, I think really helped. It never leaves you. I still am fixated on cars when I'm when I, you know, out, you know, and see cars going down the street. But so creating a time machine was one way to do it. One thing that I did was I create, I, um, I listened to a lot of music from that era because it it reminded me of sitting in my mother's car and, you know, the radio playing. And it took me back to what was going on at that point in the world. I, I, I can hear conversations, you know, simply by, I was transported back simply by the music. But I also observed, I tried to observe, I tried to follow Charles Dickens example. Um, when he wrote sketches by Boz early in his career, I mean, his, his job was to go out and observe. Ordinary people doing ordinary things um and then write about what he saw and of course he's a master of character and description and But his examples served well, I think in me uh, because i I watched I watched little kids at play interacting with their parents with each other with a toy, and I think writers are obsessive observers of what's going on around them. Where they're doing it consciously or unconsciously, and I tried—I consciously did it in this case. But there's a, but what you gather by looking, by watching, and filing it away, it's like a it's like a little mental library of observations that um, are invaluable. They're an invaluable resource that that I you know I called on again and again while writing this book, and um, that's how that's how I did it.
0: I was going to talk a little bit about Philbit's experience. Uh, kind of a shift in thought that we as readers get to go through. Basically, he never notices that he's physically different. And then there is just a rather flippant statement that changes Philbit's whole world and how he perceives himself. How did you want to portray that in the story? Especially, I guess, one scene that really stuck out to me is that, you know, Philbit loves. Running around without his shirt on, right? He likes, you know, roughhousing and doesn't really think about those kinds of things. And then there is a shift with consciousness when someone points out that he might be a little bit different physically and it changes his perception from swimming, from wanting to, um, you know, interact in gym class. I think it's such a pronounced shift that you did so well. But mm-hmm. how did you move maybe from kind of that external? you know, giddiness that we have with Philbit to that more internal reflection kind of in the middle of your book?
1: Well, first, the, the book, I, I, I structured it in a way that I think of how life unfolds. And during those young, those early years of life, at least I believe that there was no end to it. And days seem to last forever. And then, of course, as one gets older, you realize there's an end to life. And days are shorter. And that's because we become aware. I, I believe it's because we become aware of, of our mortality. And Philbert, of course, as a, as a, a, a very little boy is so carefree, so happy. And he doesn't realize that he is physically different until that, that incident. And I remember, you know, like Philbert, I remember, I recall the moment when I realized I was different from others. It wasn't gradual. It was a moment. And before that moment, I was free, carefree. I was carefree even. And I I did. I ran around, I ran around with, without clothes, not just without a shirt, without clothes, singing and dancing. And, uh, and when I realized my body was not like other people's, I, I shut down and I went from being, um, carefree to, to being careworn. The best way to sum up how it felt growing up around the other boys in my life is, and I always think of this. I remember this, especially as a boy. The, the uniform of the day, especially in, you know, during the summer in hot as blazes, Georgia is with cutoffs with, you know, bare feet and bare chest. And just the idea of that today just makes me shudder because I knew that I was different and to, and to be so exposed as a, as a, a, a boy. Was f- so frightening to me to be, to be found out because not only was I, did I have a skeletal malformation that as a very young boy I wasn't aware of, I was also, you know, gay. I didn't know that when I was a child, but I, but I became to know that I was, I mean, I, it was definitely different in that way too. So now I was not only different on the inside, I was different on the outside. And it's, it's such a feeling that fear of being found out is different being an outsider, um, that I desired boys in my life, not the girls in my life. It was, it was stifling. And, and that part of Philbert's story was easy to tell because I, you know, I lived it. But it was also one of the most painful things that I ever did to write it down because I so easily recall the shame that I felt every day. And I wanted to present it in the book the way that I did because I think that there are those moments in life where something just happens in a second. And nothing is ever the same. That's what this moment is for Philbert. And that's how it was for me growing up. And getting back to the structure of the story. So, you know, the first half of the book is very world building, character building. I wanted, you said this happened in the middle of the book. When it came, I wanted the people who, I wanted people who read the book to to really care about Philbert, this, you know, dear, kind child. And then, of course, halfway through is when it becomes more plot driven rather than world building, character building and it takes off like a shot the way life does about halfway through slow build until you realize oh my goodness half my life is gone and then the re- the other half of it seems to just go by so so quickly too quickly so those are the reasons i did it in that way and i hope that it I hope that it, it's evident when people read
0: yeah i think even in my review i said around the middle it like it shot like it propelled me as a reader to start really flipping the pages because i wanted to see how this you know discovery for for himself not only his sexuality but just his his own body discovery that he feels different than everyone else how that is going to play out in his life I think the the thing in your story that really adds to that you know whole compass of that is that it's set in a conservative, town it's in a small town it's very this is a very family driven store it's very family supportive but we also have you know the discoveries that not only you know that people will not be happy about this discovery for philbit or how that might play out in his life but also that maybe there are other people in town that also feel a bit like outsiders and how philbit begins to discover that Some of the people he's always encountered have bigger stories, which is something that we all kind of discover as we get older. How did you want to portray this? You know, we talk about not wanting to hurt feelings and to be honest in our storytelling, but also that there is kind of that pressure point of featuring people that you know and love or um, have had some interaction within your life to tell the kind of story that you know, doesn't villainize a town or, you know, take away from this journey with Velvet?
1: Well, I wanted to explore how certain forces suppress the other in small conservative communities, but I didn't want to sound preachy. (laughs) Also, I want to say that, you know, getting, sort of getting back to the, the previous question as well. So, you know there are the two parts of philbert that he's trying to hide one is his you know physical self the other is his sexual 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 identity now this this character is not ashamed This character uh, philbert philbert does not believe that he is inherently wrong because he desires the boys in his life rather than the girls and that was important to uh, that was an important part of the story for me to include because i didn't want to conflate this physical Malformation with being queer because I don't see them as related in any way. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's very, he's what I, Philbert is, is, is confident that his heart is genuinely good and that there's nothing wrong with him in that, that way. He is, he does try to protect himself and hide it because he knows that the people around him don't agree. So I wanted to show that in this really small, you know, conservative community without condemning the community without coming off as preachy. So I included some, some concrete examples of, of how, you know, that oppression is woven into the deep fabric of the Deep South. And for example, you know, the, the different entrances for Blacks and whites at a doctor's office. That's one way to show that, that oppression. The simple act of sharing f- food for, for a Black and white child to share food or not share food. And I try to do it without commenting on it, but just sort of pointing to it and seeing, saying, you know, that exists, that happened. And so, you know, another example is just capturing in conversation, offhand comments, something that is not ill intended, but that lets the, you know, the, the, the others and for, and in this instance, the queer people around know that they're not, they're not just on the outside the norm, they're wrong. And that was what I tried to do. But I will say that this book is actually, this experience has has drawn me closer to my that world. I've you know I've reconnected with a lot of people I knew from uh, Warm Springs, and they've been so supportive. And that's been a wonderful experience to uh, be able to you know tell my story. That's that's been an important uh, milestone for me to you know, reach this point because, you know, when I I've likened it to actually coming, writing the story and putting it out of the world. I've I, I likened it to actually coming out to my family over 30 years ago. Because when I did that, I, I did it in tears and with shame because I was ashamed. And my parents were ashamed. My parents were mortified. <laughs> but this book is, is a coming out of, as a whole person, not just one part of me, but as a whole person. And I'm not in tears and I'm certainly not ashamed. And it's actually drawn me closer to the people in my life. My parents and I have had many, many, many years to you know, to understand each other and appreciate each other and I'm grateful for I'm grateful for that.
0: I love that. What do you think your book adds to just the context of LGBTQ literature. What did you see missing that you think maybe your story is giving us that we haven't got to encounter before?
1: It's intended to be a message of hard fought self acceptance achieved over, you know, a, a, an entire childhood of Bible rejection and, and, and bullying, intentional and unintentional bullying. Because I didn't find any books like Red Clay Susie when I was growing up. At least they weren't on the bookmobile that I looked so looked forward to visiting, you know, once a week <laughs> that showed up miraculously, it seemed in the parking lot of the filling station uh, convenience store that sat across the road from our house. I didn't think of it that way at first. As I mentioned, it was a healing catharsis. It was an exorcism by exposition. And I mean, I would, you know, as I mentioned, I would tap away my iPhone, a wash in memories get off at my metro stop, walk to the the short distance to my car um, for the short drive home. And I would just sit there behind the wheel before starting my my, um, drive home and just cry because all this was coming out of me. And I was writing it for myself. But somewhere in there, I decided that I wasn't writing it for myself anymore. I was okay. I'm more than okay. But there are so many young people and not in and even some not so young people who live their lives on the fringes which is I think of them as my fellow fringies because I think of myself as a fringy someone who has always lived on the outside looking in and just not seeing what I saw what I what I saw was not what it didn't match what I felt deep down inside of me in my heart so I decided that I was writing this for for them for those young people who are struggling now, as I did years ago, and so i th- I hope it contributes that and, and my greatest wish is that every public library carry a copy of Ray Clay Susie, whether it be hardcover or digital or audiobook, because not everyone can afford to go and buy a book, and if it's in a library, then people who I want it to be a roadmap of sorts, this book, a roadmap, not not for a car, which feature prominently in this book. But a roadmap for the heart to find your way to your, um, your strength, your happiness, your peace. And if this book is available to people who can't afford to go and buy it, then, then they can get access to it. So that's my greatest wish. So anybody, please tell your public library to acquire a copy so that the young people in your community can have access to one more affirming story, which it is. It's an affirming, uplifting story that has its dark moments but it i i think it's so funny too <laughs> yes
0: I agree. I love that. You know, uh, we want to remind listeners that we do have an episode with Libby, the Libby app, and a really good way to kind of let them know that they should have this book on their shelves is to click that little notify me. If you don't see it in your public library system, just hit that little slider on the right and it will let the library know that they need to order a copy, which is something I did not know until Libby came and uh, discussed that with us. So we always want to make sure that we give them a nice plug because we love the library because of all they do for our community.
1: Yes. Libby is a wonderful service. That app just on your telephone or your tablet, download them and listen to them. It's great.
0: Well, I want to talk about a, a format that we haven't got to talk about, which is your audiobook. And when I spoke to Eric, your publicist and helper to help publish this beautiful book, I he had said that you had specifically asked for Pete Cross's voice, uh, and that that was a full stop moment for you as a team. So tell me more about Pete Cross because when I looked him up, I did notice that he actually does highlights magazine like audiobooks too. Like that's part of his plethora of work. But mm-hmm. you needed a sp- specific kind of voice for Philbit. And it was perfect because I went with um, Pete's narration. I did the paper copy in front of me because I have to take a lot of notes when we do these kinds of interviews. But I wanted to hear his voice because this was like a big promotional element for your story. So tell me a little bit about Pete Cross and why it was important.
1: Oh, my goodness. Well, I love talking about this and Pete Cross, because when you sell the rights to a company, that produces audiobooks um you typically you know you give up all creative control it's it's uh, it's simply a, a standard part of those contracts uh, that i understand but in my case when we sold the rights to um blackstone audio uh, and i think they did a great job with it we asked for a clause that gave me a voice in selecting the narrator i had i, I don't want to i hesitate to call it a condition of signing the contract but but it was close to that in my heart, because I am a devoted audiobook listener. I um, I don't have time to sit down with a book and read as much as I want to. I do it when I can, and I have lots of I have lots of books, physical books. But listening to audiobooks, it's so convenient. You can listen when you're doing almost anything, and I love that uh, voice actors take a written work and they turn it into another, another form of art. You know, they take it and make it their own. And um, one of my very favorite narrators happens to be award-winning voice actor, Pete Cross. I love his work. And I said to my partner, I said, oh, I wish Pete Cross could narrate Red Clay Susie. <laughs> and, but I thought that was the longest of long shots. And then the audition reels, arrived via email <laughs> and it is it is not an overstatement to say that I almost fell on the floor when I saw one of the files named Pete Cross. Huh. I could not believe it and all of the auditions were wonderful but Pete had something that just touched me and um, and the choice was made and then I got to meet him <laughs> uh, and he's just the the loveliest Person and I love what he did with Ray Clay, Susie, and Philbert I just, I'm just so um, happy.
0: Did you have another book that you particularly loved his performance in? Because I thought he did such an excellent job, but I was not familiar with his narration before.
1: Oh, he's recorded so many. Uh, he record he um he voices Ryan LaSala's books as well. So the Honeys, and those are those are those are beautifully written books. For one. But Pete does a really good job with him as well. He's he's just recorded so many. He just was one of the voice actors on Michelle Brothman's new novel. Um, he's done so many. So yeah, look up Pete Cross. He's okay. uh, he's so talented.
0: I love that. Well, I want to talk about how you're donating some of the proceeds from your book. Do you want to tell me a little bit about the organizations that you've selected to also benefit from any purchase of Red Clay Susie? You
1: know, one of my greatest. Hopes is that Red Clay Susie will be in every public library, but another um, goal of mine was to support at-risk youth, people who are having a rough time of it, as I did when I was young. And there are two organizations that I've been a fan of their important work, the, the important work they do every day for so long. And one is the Born This Way Foundation, which was founded by Lady Gaga and her mother Cynthia Germanata. And the other is the Trevor Project. And so I decided to donate a portion of the, what I make from the sale of Ray Clay Susie and support the efforts of these two organizations that help at risk youth who struggle as outsiders, who are trying to, you know, find a way to lead a productive and happy life in a world that can sometimes feel hostile and alienating and inhospitable.
0: I love that. This is just a wonderful thing. I am so excited for people to get their hands on your book. And for the second part of our conversation, we are going to be talking about LGBTQ History Month. So we're going to be talking about LGBTQ History Month for October. And I just wanted to inform listeners because... I can honestly admit that I thought Pride Month was the month. I did not know there was a history month until Jeffrey pitched this idea. And so I want to tell you a little bit about what the differences are between Pride Month and LGBTQ History Month. So this was created in 1994 by Rodney Wilson. He was a high school history teacher in Missouri. And in 1995, basically, a resolution passed by the General Assembly of the National Education Association that they include LGBT History Month within a list of commemorative holidays. So October was selected because it coincides with National Coming Out Day, which is October 11th, which had already been established, the anniversary of the first march on Washington for gay and lesbian rights in 1979 as well. And this month is really meant to highlight and celebrate the history and achievements of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people. And according to GLAAD, quote in quotes, during the early years, the celebration was largely marked by a call to action and commemoration. But since then, the History Month has blossomed into a national coordinated effort to highlight exemplary role models from the LGBT community. And since 2006, this push has so far been led by LGBT rights and education organization equality forums. So I will link to that, which is a piece in the University of Central Florida's history about what that is and what the differences are between Pride Month and LGBT History Month. So I just wanted to kind of set that up before we get started in our book stack. I did tell Jeffrey that he's bringing one of the most eclectic stacks, which I You know, I am not surprised, but I wanted to start out with a book that I started reading for this month. It's called How to Survive a Plague, and it was written by David France. This was a New York Times 2016 notable book, so this is definitely very backlist. I wanted to bring one that was backlist so that in case these new releases are not something you can grab, this is definitely probably on your library shelves. Basically, this is about the AIDS crisis in the very beginning days, and I personally had not really read a lot about that uh, as far as like the context of history, what the grassroots efforts were to help with the AIDS crisis. But it begins with the author's perception of, you know, what was happening within the headline news and how scary it was. I think the only thing that we could ever equate in our living lifetime is what happened with the pandemic. But basically, it was about the very first New York Times article that came out and kind of announced that there was something going on. The headline read, Rare Cancer Seen in 41 Homosexuals. And what I think was important about reading about these beginning days is that, you know, when you think about the gay community, there is a lot of, you know, separation, um, ugly headlines about them, frankly, and things that had happened to them where it might be difficult to accept that as like a real and true statement. So to him, it was like, if this headline's coming out, do I actually trust it? Because there is a mistrust when you have been perceived in those kinds of ways. But with the whole book, it's really about the real everyday people who made themselves available and sometimes the most humiliating and difficult Kind of information to share. I mean, something like I'm having diarrhea or I'm having these really horrific symptoms that you have to disclose as part of research. But people did that openly in order to help them make the scientific research to get the drugs that were needed within the community and hopefully make it more of a manageable disease within the community. There was a lot about survivor's guilt and the difficulty and just being run down from the entire experience. And I think it was really eye-opening to me because of the stigma around it and how they were able to kind of come together and build out their own research and and build their own clinics and, and fund their own projects just in order to make sure that more people survived. According to this book and and statistics, uh, basically because of efforts like that, 16 million people are alive that would not have been alive. And one thing that I did not know as in this day and age that globally we are still losing like 630,000 people a year because we do not have access to affordable medication. And that is not even to say affordable medication, but just the policy and procedure to access that medication, whether that be, you have to have the money to see a doctor. Um, you have to have a doctor who will prescribe it for you. And there are a lot of other elements to that, especially in the US, the cost can be prohibitive. So it's it's something to think about. And the more that I read, the more I understood and learned more about the AIDS crisis. So I would definitely add How to Survive a Plague by David France to your book list. I really found it to be engrossing. It's a page turner. I mean, honestly, right within the opening pages, he grabs the reader into the activism that's happening within the community. We're going to start out with one that I am familiar with, that I am really excited to talk about on the show. Tell me a little bit about My Government Means to Kill Me by Rashid Newsom.
1: Well, I chose this book because I think it's so important. It's the chronicle of a young black gay life in 1980s New York. Um, the protagonist, Trey, stumbles into history defining moments and, uh, his actions have an impact on the outcome. It, actual historical figures appear, men like Bayard Rustin, um, Larry Kramer. And, and, and this is what is so, I think, part of what is so fascinating about the book. There are footnotes throughout, and it it gives the novel a feeling of authenticity. And and in the end, it's it's just a compelling story, which will give you a history lesson of the AIDS crisis in New York City during those very early years.
0: Yeah. Washington Post described that one as a love letter to activism, and they said it isn't to say it glamorizes it. In fact, they said it is quite the opposite, that he gets dubious pleasure of having several of his elders and mentors disagree with one another, giving him advice from eras gone by or challenging his own sense of ethics, and that he beautifully portrays just how social activism has to be. Because without people interacting, like cheering, caring about each other, um, you basically, you get a burnout stage, right? Um, And that's why allyship together, even the bickering kind of is like a means to the end, and that there would be no social movements at all if we didn't have a little bit of discourse. But I did find an interview with Rashid where he was discussing um, in a publication called Them about why he wanted to write specifically about the AIDS crisis from the Black perspective. And in that interview, he said, it dawned on me that there was an opportunity to do that with Black queer experiences during the rise of the AIDS crisis, because so many of the stories from that period are centered on circles of gay white men. And these depictions cut out all the letters of LGBTQIA+, except for G, and left people of color on the periphery if they showed up at all. And the standard stories also ignore that many caretakers and patients realized AIDS often led to a tortured death. And so exercising the right to die became a common act of rebellion and mercy. So I will link to his article that he did in an interview because that's like one tiny brush upon a really brilliant uh, capture of what he was trying to portray within that book. So I'm really glad that you brought it. And I, I am I would love to have him on the show, just putting it out there because I think it would be fascinating to hear his story. Now you had another book that almost sounds a little similar to the book that I was talking about earlier. So tell me Mm -hmm. a little bit about this, but this is actually geared for young adult readers, if I'm correct.
1: It is. And this is The Other Pandemic, an AIDS memoir. It's by Lynn Curley. And it is, it's a Junior Library Guild Gold Standard Selection. And I chose this book because Curley tells the stories of the many friends and loved ones that he lost to the disease, including his own life partner. And um, you know, LGBTQ plus rights and access to healthcare continues to be threatened today. I mean, it's it's this book's arrival on the heels of the global pandemic, which, by the way, was met with lightning a lightning response to it's it's just a damning reminder of the slow response to the AIDS crisis and that's another reason this is such an important story an important book and and it also includes photographs of those who currently lost to AIDS along you know there there are photographs of them and and it lists the age their age when they passed mm. it is so personal it will break you apart and then put you back together again.
0: Wow, that sounds really incredible. I actually had never heard of this. I I did have to go and look it up. And the recommended reading age for any parents that might be listening is 12 to 17 years old. And the grade level recommendation is seventh to ninth grade. Uh, The author has a master's degree in art history and has written and illustrated more than a dozen books for children. I think that you may recognize some of these titles like Trains, Skyscraper, Ballpark, The Story of America's Baseball Field, Capital. He has done some excellent work in nonfiction. And so this is one of his books, his latest book that we encourage readers to check out. And I'm so glad that you brought it to the show today because I actually didn't know anything about it. And it sounds like it would be a really impactful book for a lot of readers and their children.
1: May I mean, also add that, you know, it is, you know, a junior library guild gold standard selection, but it's also a book that people of any age would um, get a lot from reading. I think it's not just geared to the younger people.
0: Good, good. I'm glad to hear that. Well, this last one is for sure an under-the-radar gem, and we love those on this show. So I want to hear a little bit about short film starring my beloved's Red Bronco by Kay Iver from Milkweed Editions. This one was published in 2023. So what can you tell me a little bit about this and why it's so impactful for this history month?
1: This book, um, by the way, it won the 2022 Ballad Spar Prize for Poetry. And I have never read anything like this book. I think of it as a coming of age novel in poems. It's devastating and sad, but it it also celebrates love. and those two few moments together when lovers escape the world that doesn't want them to be the people they are or to be together. And the poems, it it fascinated me. The poems are in many different forms. And I think that this contributes to the unsettling world that Ivor creates. The characters never find a consistent, dependable rhythm. Mm. Uh, Readers won't either. So there are some, a few trigger warnings with this one. Be prepared for physical abuse, self harm, negligent parenting, but it is a revelation. It really is. It's well, beautiful. I'm glad
0: you brought it. Uh, Kate Ivor is a non-binary trans poet. Born in Mississippi and they won that prize that you were talking about. Um, I actually found one of their poems online and it was an experience. So I am going to link to that. It was called Who is this grief for? And I will link to palette poetry, which, uh, is where, you know, you can read the poet and then also hear why they wrote it, which is also just as fascinating, but to kind of decipher a little bit about what it's about to try to explain on the podcast is it's about they're going to acupuncture and it releases things within their body and how acupuncture, you know, it really is meant to kind of release pain and and release suffering. And it's one of the few interactions that we would say that that, you know, would be helpful, but also how emotion and the things that we say and the things that we do also can be, you know, trapped with inside us and how this experience kind of reminded them of all the things that they had left unsaid or did not get to execute. And so at the very end of it, which I think is really important for this month, uh, they were asked about it being political. Is their writing political? And they said, anything I ask an audience to look at has political implications. Every time I write, there's an opportunity to challenge the status quo of ideas, syntax, and poetic form. My grief was very personal and very political. Losing someone to the mere fact of their marginalization can be maddening. That kind of grief implicates strangers, many of them, These elegies were born out of the compulsion to ensure Missy's personhood and transness were not erased as they were from his obituary and his funeral. I wanted to rebuild that memory while also confronting the landscape that he found uninhabitable I encourage you to dive into this poem on palette poetry. It's P-A-L-E-T-T-E, like not not palette, the other palette. Um, So definitely check the show notes today. And I'm really glad that you brought it because it sounds so impactful. I can say that the only interaction I've had is with their poem that was online. And I was like, wow, I'm feeling tears welling up in my eyes uh just reading about the experience. And I think anytime anyone writes about grief, it, it can be. Quite triggering to think about those kinds of things, but also incredibly therapeutic, too. Yes. Well, Jeffrey, as we close out, one of the things that we like to do is I get to do my proud mom moment on the show where I get to tell you why I'm proud of you, uh, because that's the kind of mom I am uh, annoying my children with these kinds of fun facts. But I just want to say that when you had originally pitched coming to the show, I was like, oh, you know, senior advisor to the Library Congress. I do want to say that what really ended up being so impactful to me was the story of Philbit and that I was so glad that you had reached out to be a part of this show because uh, it ended up being on our best books of the year so far list. We just talked about your book last week because it was such a special and impactful story. I have a little thing for Southern storytellers, but especially coming of age stories. And I think the ways that you were able to as you said, break yourself open in order for someone to feel seen. I I felt that in in your story, and I'm so glad that you are sharing both the profits and proceeds with people that may have felt like outsiders in their community, but also that you're showing that we're all a little bit outsiders if we open our eyes a little bit. So Tell me a little bit about what you are feeling most proud of, whether that's in regards to this project or just in general with your career.
1: There are a couple of things that make me feel proud, and I might add, happy. And I think the primary thing is sharing my story through Philbert, hoping that it has a positive impact, positive influence on other people's lives who may be experiencing something similar, having lived as an outsider my entire life uh, i i think we're, we're we're everywhere and so i hope that philbit story can can help other people so that makes me very proud if that if that can happen and very happy as well i'm also really happy that i've met so many new people both writers lots of readers book lovers it's i feel as though my world has just expanded exponentially from just a couple of years ago i feel so much more connected to my family and connected to people that i didn't know even i didn't even know existed but now i know them and i think that's the power of storytelling the power of literature and i'm very proud and happy about that part of that is actually you know just talking to people um at book events i love you know meeting with book clubs it's just such a joy to connect with people who care about literature care about storytelling. And then finally, I'll, I'll mention something that happened just very recently is that Red Clay Susie was long listed to the Center for Fiction First Novel Prize. And that is just such a, a a humbling honor, especially to be among the other authors on the list, authors whose work is just beautiful and special. And I'm so grateful to be a part of them, um, a part of that that group. So those are a few of the things that make me proud and happy.
0: That's amazing. Well, Jeffrey, this has been so wonderful. I'm so glad that you got to be a part of the show and also these amazing books that you brought so that readers can learn more about LGBTQ history. I'm really grateful for all that you brought to our show today. And I hope that more people will pick up Red Clay Susie. And as Jeffrey said, ask your library if it isn't on the shelf so that we can make sure that those proceeds go to those organizations that he is supporting. Thank you, Jeffrey.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Amy. It's been a pleasure.